An update on case law involving vulnerable road users, part one. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello, I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcross. And here we are back for the second series of Wheel Life. In this episode, we're going to look at some updated case law, revisiting and updating some of the conversations we had last series. Excellent. So we are. How are you, Caroline? I'm not bad. Um, feeling I'm back in the office. There's a lot more people around. Uh, life's creeping back. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, having had a summer away um, and, well, I suppose before we kind of get into what we're going to talk about, a really sad thing this summer, we always remember and recognise um that the cases we're talking about involve catastrophic injuries, uh, but it particularly comes home this summer. Um, as um, as you know, a, a dear friend and colleague, uh, Richard Viney, uh, a barrister at 12KBW, was tragically killed in a cycling accident in the Alps just this August. Um, and so I just wanted to remember him and just remind ourselves if we needed any recollection of the uh, life-changing effect of a lot of the cases that we're talking about. Uh, so yeah, that was a bit of a tragedy. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's hit quite a lot of people quite hard. Absolutely, and and uh, as I say, it's a chastening reminder of how vulnerable people can be on the road. But on a happier note, you had a big cycle this summer with no uh, mishap. I'm very glad to say when you went round Loch Ness, didn't you? Yeah, it's one of my only big rides of the year. It's the only sportive, and it's the first one I've done in two eighteen months, I suppose. I flew up to Scotland with my bike, which I was very concerned about putting my bike in a bike box and on a plane. I did um, a deal with a woman in a car park to hire her bike box, um, which was quite entertaining. I got my bike up to Scotland. My nephew helped me put it back together. And then, yeah, there was about two and a half, three thousand riders, which is about half the field there usually is. But it's a closed road event and you start at half five, six o'clock in the morning and ride out around Loch Ness as the sun is rising. It was very misty to start. And then, yeah, we, we were at the back um, and uh, kept getting overtaken by the pace car telling us to uh, get in front of it or we'd get wiped out of the race and get broomed. But we got through. Um, I cycled 80% of the hill, the very big hill in the middle of it, which um, Fort Augustus, which I was very happy about. Um, and they mark the, to- the highest part of the whole ride with a bagpipe player. So, so when you can start hearing <laughs> the bagpipes, you're not going bonkers. You're just at the top of the hill. Um, and I started celebrating and whooping and getting very excited. And this woman looked across at me and she's like, why are you so excited about bagpipes? I was like, <laughs> it's the top. It means we've got to the top. The we're no more climbing and then you come off the top past the lovely bagpipe player and uh then you've got downhill on a massive open road you can see hills and locks for miles and um yeah it was fantastic and i beat my previous time by 15 minutes which with very little training i was very pleased with so yeah it's my one and only big ride of the year and it was i'm so glad i did did it that sounds absolutely brilliant i'm a little disappointed you didn't cycle there and back but there we are but that's (laughs) sounds very good it's for another day perhaps but uh how about you and your tandem so not so much tandem action um but what i have done is i've got a collapsible helmet do you remember in the 
yeah. the last series we heard from uh, Dan that he'd got a collapsible helmet. They exist and I've got one. Um, I have to say it doesn't actually collapse very much at all, uh, but it goes a little bit in. Uh, so anyway, I'll have to um, show you it, get a picture of it at some point. Uh, but did some, um, did some, well, I hesitate to say mountain biking. My son has accelerated away from me. He's now doing some quite serious mountain biking. I'm doing some leisure riding, I think it would be fair to say. But um, yeah, yeah, not nothing like yours, but a good summer on the bike. Well, I would say that was my only bike ride of the summer. I think I've been out once um, other than that, and that was it really. Um, but one of the things that did happen when I did go out with a friend is we had an altercation with a driver who reminded us of the highway code, which was very nice of him. Um, we'd pulled over to the side of the road to let him pass and he stopped to remind us about the highway code um, it was it was actually quite a nasty experience to be honest at the end of a really good ride he got quite irate with us and it kind of leads into one of the stories that um, I wanted to flag about um, Sarah Story she was out um, riding with South Yorkshire Police recently they were doing a safe pass um, operation in Sheffield and um, there's footage of her being given a pointless and unnecessary gesture by a cyclist by a driver sorry that overtook her Um, it's I'll leave you to think what a pointless and unnecessary gesture was but what's really frustrating about it and the police flagged that the actual person overtaking her did everything right. <laughs> they hung back. They waited for the safe place to overtake. They crossed right over to the other side of the road. They pulled around safely, at which point they put a rude gesture out the window. And there was just no point. There was no reason for it. Their, their driving was fine. It was their attitude afterwards that caused the problem. And during that operation, which happened out on the Manchester Road, 25 motorists were pulled over and spoken to in a two-hour period, which is quite a high proportion of people. <laughs> um, and five further motorists who weren't stopped um, would be receiving a notice of intended prosecution. Out of all of the people that were stopped, well, those 30 incidents, total of 10 prosecutions for driving without due care and attention and contravening double white lines. Um, Three motorists receive warnings. That means that if they're found using a vehicle in an antisocial or careless manner, again, within 12 months, their vehicles would be seized. So it's really shows the attitudes of drivers and cyclists and sharing the road together, really. Um, And going back to that, story the driver was driving safely it was the attitude of the driver that was the problem that does seem absolutely extraordinary i mean about that's that's that uh story of Sarah's story um i thought what she said was interesting when she said we must ensure those who post pose the greatest threat of harm are educated from speed limits being limits not targets to the appropriate use of a vehicle horn and she might well want to add to the appropriate use of a gesture out of the window as well but um I mean, there's there's serious points and that's a very high rate of uh, misdemeanors um, interestingly we'd already discussed and i think we definitely should um have an episode later on in this series looking at the highway code and the proposed changes to it um but what was he what was the driver educating you about or so-called educating you about what was it what was his concern well we were coming up to a blind corner and there was a a mirror above the corner so you could see what was coming around and we were coming up to it this guy had been behind us for quite a while and there was a lay-by on the left so um the my friend i was riding with so let's pull over and just let him round kind of thing he's he's starting to get 
upset kind of thing so we stuck pulling into the left and Ian started gesturing for him to drive past us at which point he pulled up and decided to point out to us that it was very unsafe for him to overtake us at this point because it was a blind corner Ian pointed out when we were pulling into the lay-by so he wasn't overtaking us he was just going to have to go around the corner use the mirror to see around the corner as he would have had to do anyway but he just sat in his car uh, blocking the road just around the corner from a blind bend and lectured us about the highway code instead and that we shouldn't be pulling up well i'm not quite sure which point he was trying to make i think it was the fact that we were waving him past us um and it was unsafe to do that whereas we were just indicating we were pulling in and it was then safe for him to overtake but it's a difference of opinion but it was it just left a a bad taste in the mouth after what was a really good ride um, um, and it, it felt really threatening as well to be honest yeah I mean that's something else that we will probably look at as well because one of the things that we were um, aware of is the increase of the number of uh, cycle trips being made by women which has risen by over 50% in 2020 uh, which is a fantastic rise uh, but and also the um, lockdown had the benefit of, of actually encouraging people that are normally rather more wary of traffic and wary of traffic danger to get out on their bikes um but um that has also led um sadly to an increase in uh accidents and an increase in fatalities so last year fatalities were up by 40 percent 140 people were killed on the roads in cycling fatalities last year up from 100 and although those are small numbers a 40 percent jump is enormous um and so far in 2021 in london alone there have been seven cycling fatalities uh, four of those um involving a lorry or an hgv that's up till up till August 2021. So um, it remains a problem of uh, increased road use and increased challenges and increased danger. Um, And we're going to have a look at some of those things now, aren't we? Yeah, and just to add to that, um, and again, it's something we'll talk about in a future episode, um, e-scooter fatalities in the last, this year to date, are at 10 fatalities as well, which is an increase. I think it was three fatalities in the preceding two years. Wow. And in this year alone, there's been 10. So if you say in 140 cyclist fatalities and 10 e-scooter fatalities it's it's a lot of vulnerable road users and that's before we start looking at pedestrians absolutely i mean of course always they get measured by miles traveled and blah 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 there's various different indexes and of course the number of scooters has exponentially risen so proportionally it may still remain small but as we know everyone is a life and everyone is a a a, a destructive injury uh, and they are Vulnerable road users continue to be of concern to us, which is why we make our podcast. Um, And so today we're going to be having a look at uh, some of the updated case law um, since we um, uh, in the last few months. Um, And and we thought we'd just recap with a, a little recap of the legal principles. So we're basically looking at road traffic accidents and in particular personal injury claims. Of course, you know, that encompasses the full range of injuries from the minor to the fatal. Um, and the kind of first core part of that is um, is a liability claim. So in common law, uh, a duty of care, which is one road user to another, um, a standard of care, which is uh, the reasonable protagonist of whatever it is you're doing. So a reasonable driver, reasonable pedestrian, reasonable cyclist, um, and that reasonable standard is held to be an objective level to the role you are carrying out so um, a reasonably competent driver of the vehicle and the class that you are driving um, uh, the fact that you are a beginner or a learner driver doesn't mean that you can drive less well Um, and then the assessment of 
liability is on the balance of probabilities. So uh, you look at the facts and weigh them up and on the balance of probabilities, has the claimant proved a breach uh, of that uh, standard of care? That's the starting point, isn't it? Yeah, um, and it's a common sense assessment as well. It's it's not looking at the um, the perfection, the perfect driver on the perfect road. It's looking at it in the circumstances. Each accident turns on its own facts. So whilst we're going to be um, flagging up case law here, um, and it's persuasive to court you have to look at the facts in each individual case. For example, if you've got a car on a major road, um, they've got priority and another car or a a cyclist or an e-scooter rider comes out from a minor road onto a major road, the person on the major road has priority. That doesn't mean they they shouldn't take into account the actions of the person coming off the minor road, but the person coming from the minor road onto the major road has to realise that they have not got the priority. Um, speed limits, um, as we were, as Sarah's story flagged back in um, the first story um, we were telling at the beginning of the podcast, speed limits aren't a target. You've got to drive for the road conditions that you're driving, so that needs to be taken into account. But also, if you're bringing a claim against somebody, you've got to prove that they've done something wrong, that they've been negligent. It's not just the fact that you were hit um, is proof that they were negligent. What what was wrong with their driving? What was what caused it to fall below? the reasonable standard that Emily was talking about. And of course, you can take the circumstances <clears throat> into account. So uh, as your story with a blind brand, you can't drive, whatever the road limit may be, the speed limit on that road, you can't ride to that limit. You have to um, conduct yourself suitable to that which you can see, uh, to the road condition. So if it's wet, if it's dark, if it's foggy, uh, <clears throat> if there are hazards in the road and so forth. And um, also it's your uh, duty as a driver. Um, he is quite correct that uh, if we... Uh, um, we uh, waved him forward. He put, he uh, relied just upon us and didn't look at the road for himself and then crashed into somebody. He can't turn around and say, well, they, they waved me forward. You've got a responsibility yourself to make sure that the road is clear. Yeah, the classic example of that is someone flashing their headlights uh, and flashing headlights uh, to let you through doesn't mean you can just drive out with impunity. It means at best they're saying they're not going to drive into you and giving you the opportunity to make that judgment for yourself. But it's no defence to cross a line of traffic because someone flashed you and then have an accident on the other side of the road and say, but they flashed me. Um, <clears throat> it remains your responsibility to conduct yourselves at all times, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and if you do prove liability for the driver that's crashed into you and prove that they were speeding, that they their uh, driving fell below that of the reasonable driver, you could then still be found responsible yourself um, and contributing negligent for your part in the the accident. You can't have 100% contributing negligence, however, because if there's 100% contributing negligence, what did the other driver do in the first place? Yeah, if it's 100% contributing negligence, it's your fault. (laughs) But but you can have a balance. And actually, a lot of the cases that we look at, or a lot of the cases that end up going to trial, are, are exactly that. Because, of course, when something's very, very straightforward, if it's very obvious someone's done something wrong you tend either not to litigate or tend not to get to trial. So most of the reported cases are these sort of difficult balancing acts. And it is a matter of judgment and it is a matter of weighing things up. Um, But we can gain some idea of principles uh, by looking at um, those facts and looking at the uh, weighing up exercise that's been done. And in particular, um, that um, comes into play with contributory negligence when you're looking at uh, causative potency, when you're balancing up that... Um, idea of 
um, who is to blame um, and the idea that that some people may be more to blame than others. So uh, the big bus and the small child, the causative potency or the blameworthiness of the protagonist is not equal. I mean, that's something that um, is, is an idea has developed over time and indeed is something that's that's being considered to being taken forward and enshrined into the highway code um, in terms of some people being more responsible than others, isn't it? Yeah, um, that's the hierarchy of road users. But as you said, we're going to talk about that another time. But whenever insurers um, and uh, solicitors and councils look at um, a road traffic accident and there's a car and a child involved, as Emily said, you tend to always look at what the car's done wrong first. um, And they've got a higher hurdle to get over than the child or the, or even the cyclist. But it will also work, and we've talked about some cases in the past, I think, when you've got two cars together and one of them does something that's just plumb stupid, you know, pulling a UE in the middle of the road and has an accident with another car, you can still have that concept of causative potency and relative blameworthiness between two cars. It's not simply different types of road users. Yeah. Okay, well, if we move on and we cover, we've, we've broken it down into, we've got cycles, um, pedal cycles, so bicycles, motorcycles, and then child pedestrians. And if we start with um, the cycling cases uh, first, and then we'll move on to the others. And that might be in a separate episode. Excellent. Let's do that. Fine. So cracking on, starting off very appropriate for you with your Loch Ness trip is a Scottish case of Wallace and Roach. Yeah. Um, and whilst it's a, a Scottish case, so it's not um, on all fours with um, an English case, if we, if Emily and I were arguing these, it is... Um, The facts behind the case are very useful. Um, The claimant was a cyclist who was injured in a collision with the defendant at the intersection of a national cycle path and an access road. It was actually next to St Andrew's Golf Course and there was an event going on at the time. The access road, so this is the road that the car was driving on, had priority over the cycle path and at the intersection between the two. So it was for cyclists approaching on the access road um, in either direction. Sorry, so, so for cyclists who were approaching that access road, so the point where the cycle path crossed with the access road, there was um, prominent giveway signs in either direction. So going back to what I was saying earlier about a major and a minor road, the major road was the access road here and the minor road, so the people who have to give way was the cycle path. So as the claimant was approaching the access road, he was travelling at a speed of about 20 miles per hour. He didn't brake and he didn't reduce his speed at any time as he approached. He ignored the giveaway signs. His bicycle collided with the front near side of the defendant's car as it travelled along the access road. Now, the defendant had been travelling at no more than 15 miles per hour. He'd seen the cycle path sign, warning sign ahead and he'd been looking out for cyclists. Even though he was on the major road, he was looking out to see if there was anything going to pull in front of him. He had a view of the cycle path to his right and he wanted to clear the edge of a hedge which ran parallel to the cycle path. So he also had a sight line to his left. As he continued to move forward um, to gain a line of sight, he was struck by the claimant's bike. At the first instance, so the first court hearing, the claimant's case failed and the claimant appealed. So on appeal, it was rejected by the Sheriff's Appeal Court. The claimant's submissions failed to recognise that the Sheriff had concluded that the fundamental cause of the accident was the negligent and irresponsible action of the claimant in failing to comply with the give-way sign. 
there was no substance substance to the suggestion by the claimant that he was less culpable of blameworthy or blameworthy because he was on a leisure path designed to separate him from motor traffic and he was only a danger to himself. Counsel for the claimant was wrong to criticise the sheriff for failing to refer to what he described as a central feature of the case, i.e. that the accident occurred at an intersection of a national cycle path rather than at a road. The legal duty on the claimant to take reasonable care and to comply with the road signs was no less when cycling on a cycle path than on a road. So if there is a, a sign there saying give way or a sign there saying stop, you have to comply with the road sign. It doesn't matter if it's a cycle path versus the road. If you're on the cycle path and it crosses the road and it's telling you to stop or give way, you have to do that. You can't just ignore it. I think what's really interesting about this case is um, that if you had the, the claimant as a car, you wouldn't be thinking it was a very interesting proposition at all, that the car hadn't stopped at a give way sign you would say, well, it stands to reason they must be to blame. And the only circumstance in which that wouldn't be is the sort of edging out type of case. And I suppose it could have been, it doesn't sound like it was argued like that, but if he's edging out to look round the hedge and he can't do any more and he can't do anything else and he can't, you know, that sort of circumstance of, a, of, a, of, of trying to pull out into a road and you have to go slowly, slowly or pulling out of a byway, there's nothing else you can do. But if you just say that this is a, this is a car coming out doesn't stop at a give way sign it pulls out and has an accident you know the suggestion that you wouldn't be liable for that is 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 very difficult to understand and so I think it's that sense that cyclists are somehow different and the rules of the road don't apply to them as much as they apply to cars and particularly when you've got that cycle path involved is what's really interesting about this case. Yeah it's if, if there's a sign there it's there for a reason um, and you need to take notice of it. Um, I was sat in London um, recently at a Pret uh, looking out at traffic lights that I was next to and the cycles and e-scooters that were coming up to the red traffic lights and just freely going through them without stopping just gobsmacked me to be entirely honest. The amount that there was I'm not tiring everyone with the same brush at all. A lot stopped, but the, there was quite a few that just went through without even, even pausing, to be entirely honest. I think what's really interesting is there's nothing to stop you getting off your bike or scooter and wheeling through. Because I know, I mean, one of the difficulties of a lot of the smart traffic lights, certainly in London, is they're triggered on the minor roads. They're triggered by the presence of a car coming up to them. And a car comes up, it recognise, it, the lights recognise it and therefore turns green after a while. And they don't work for bikes. So you can actually get to a red light and be stuck and be stuck and be stuck and be stuck. And I mean, there's one on my way to work and I regularly watch people stop for a bit and then they just look either way and then they just cycle through the lights. And actually, the easier thing to do is just get off your bike and, and walk and you're, you're absolutely safe or press the pedestrian button to make the lights change. But I, I think that's one of the triggers. Although another trigger is people just don't seem to think that red lights apply to them. So I think um, another thing that's interesting about that case is... Uh, as we said, the, the, the idea of cars sometimes or, or road users having to edge out and look round hedges. Uh, and of course, that um, concept of hedges and sight lines and coming to a danger has also arisen in, in highways cases such as the Gorringe and Corderdale case of 2004 or Stoven and Wise and the extent to which 
uh, a highway authority um, has an assumption of responsibility um, of coming to a danger. Stephen and Wise was when there was a bank and whether you could see around the bank. Um, um, and Gorringe was the case of the um, slow sign on the road that has had become obscured and was no longer visible. Um, uh, but but in neither of those cases uh, was the highway responsible. Um, and there's a recent case in a similar sort of ilk of uh, Price and Oxfordshire County Council, um, which is a 2021 case. And it's actually, um, the long and the short of it is it's ended up going back to... Um, um, it was, it, was, it was an appeal from a district judge and um, the circuit judge ha- overturned the appeal and has sent it back for um, um, a further trial on its fact. But the interesting thing about that case was it was a hazard on a um, um, on an actual cycle lane. So um, in that case, the claimant was cycling home along a shared uh, footpath that was part cycle path and part pedestrian path with a thick white painted line in the middle to demarcate the wide path. It was a road you use all the time, to and from work every night, and was cycling along in the dark. And um, poor chap, he cycled into a sign <laughs> that was there to say, watch out, this is part cycle. You know, those signs that have got bikes and pedestrians on it. And he cycled into the post. Yeah. And um, it was um, posted on the white line. Um, and he just cycled straight into it. Couldn't really. So, provide, sorry, sorry, sorry. When you say it's posted on the white line, it was what in the middle of the cycle path, or it was to the edge of the cycle path. So, as I understand it, it was um, just, and that's simply from reading the the case, not 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 a case I'm involved in. As I understand it, I haven't seen photographs. It was um, in the the on the white line that marked the middle between the pedestrian side and the bike side so it wasn't in the pathway but it was between the two um uh whether that was over to the a side of a road with a hedge i'm not sure but certainly it was it was sufficient that it was an obstruction uh that that he then um cycled into um and uh, uh, but the but the, again the the assessment was um as set out um, uh, in the case law, which is don't mistake this for being something other than a classic statement of of, of Mills. Is there a danger in the highway, um, and is that a danger that, um, that 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 effectively will lead to a claim being made? Look at the facts. Look at the um, uh, coming to a danger. Looking at whether or not um, it was a foreseeable danger, um, and and going down that sort of classic pathway. It's a very interesting sort of recitation of the law, um, um, and as I say, it doesn't end up determining anything other than <laughs> that the first uh, judgment was wrong, which found the defendant one-third responsible and the claimant two-thirds responsible um and the uh appeal judge said the um the pathway through the law had been incorrectly followed and therefore the whole thing had to be assessed again so what the outcome will be needs to be considered again um but that's an interesting um look at um uh, those um, cases um, going right back to Mills and is there a danger and is that a danger that was reasonably foreseeable and was it that reasonable foreseeable danger that caused the harm? Yeah, no, I, I read through the case this morning when you sent it across and um, bearing in mind this is a sign that's been there for a very long time and he cycled past it a lot of times without any issues and there's no other reported issues with the path. It'll be interesting to see if we find out, probably not, if it ends up going, it's gone back to the the uh, the lower court we might never find out what the actual 
ultimate outcome is. Well, I think that's right. I mean, as is often the case, it is the um, point of assessing the legal pathway that may well enable the parties to have a clarity as to what they should do next. <laughs> but um, but nonetheless, for, for what is there, it's an interesting distillation of lots and lots of, of um, old case law in a sort of modern wrapper. Yeah, no, it, it, as you said, it does break it down in terms of the um, assessing whether the risk of the accident by the placement of the sign in the particular circumstance of the case was reasonably foreseeable, whether it was a real source of danger, which is greater than any an everyday risk for normal hazard faced by cyclists on a cycle path way. And I, we know that there's usually quite a lot of um, everyday risks on those cycle paths. And then only then um, going on to find whether or not it was sufficiently serious to require the defendant to actually take steps to eliminate or remedy it. So there's that three steps that you've got to get through. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, whether these people do or not. <laughs> um, exactly. So I think today we've kind of got ourselves back into things. We've we've looked at some cycle cases and next time we can look at the motorcycle case and look at the child pedestrians. I think that'll be great. And let's do that in another episode. Yeah, So fantastic. Thanks ever so much, Caroline, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, great. See you then. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com.